Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Join me as I interview and promote living composers. In this series of interviews, I talk with composers about their musical journeys, their past successes and setbacks, and their current projects. For more information about this podcast, as well as a complete archive of episodes, please visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Dr. Eric William Barnum. Eric is the current director of choral activities at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. His choral works have been acclaimed domestically as well as internationally. He has held residencies with such ensembles as Choral Arts, Contus, the Rose Ensemble, and Choral Vocal Art, Choral Vocal Artist, to name a few. He is the recipient of many awards and grants, including the Chanticleer Student Composer Competition for his work, She Walks in Beauty, a Bush Foundation Artist Fellowship, and a McKnight Foundation Grant. Eric Barnum, thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. Thanks, Steve. Very pleased to be with you today. You know, my experience with you has grown over the years. You, you started to me as a, a name on a piece of music that my high school students were working on. Uh, you then became a fellow alum from the University of Washington. I then met you and made your acquaintance. And now I listen to you on your podcast, The Choral Contrarians. And I actually want to start there. I'd like you to tell us about your podcast and tell us what it means to be a choral contrarian. Um, yeah, this, uh, <laughs> this podcast is, I think, become a pretty important part of my career, especially in how I um, learn and develop philosophies about not only conducting, but music in general, choral music specifically. And this started, I remember, it was at a regional ACDA conference where I first met Richard Robbins, who is the director of choral activities at the University of Minnesota Duluth currently. Um, and he is a longtime uh, Texas conductor who, who was quite successful down there and, and then decided to make his move northward into the snow of Duluth. And I met him in, and I was sort of riffing on weird stuff. And in the middle of having a conversation with him, we sort of discovered that we had a lot of same similar philosophies about certain sort of side topics to choir, choir yeah. and, and sort of choral ensemble philosophies and, and how the choir works or what's going on today in choral music or why are we where we're at in sort of American national choir music versus global or, you know, but somewhere along the line, maybe months later, I can't, I can't even remember. I think I, I gave him a call or vice versa. And we started just riffing on these little outside the normal trajectory topics because there, I, we discovered that to both of us, these topics were always on our minds constantly. And maybe it's just because we sort of have a similar personality about philosophy and have read the, some of the same things. And, you know, we started to call each other more often to, to essentially be colleagues, you know, mm -hmm. to sort of bounce ideas off of each other. And then I remember maybe after a year or two, I thought, what if this were more than just us talking on the phone in between class periods about certain issues? No, I mean, we weren't talking every day. We were talking maybe once every two months. And I thought, what if we just recorded our conversation? Because maybe it would be useful to somebody to hear some of these things. Because what we were noticing is that some of the issues that we were talking about are indeed on the fringes. They're not necessarily practical all the time of what we were talking about. It's not how to conduct this or how to do a lesson plan, or they're not, they're not practical. They're more philosophical. And, and one thing that we thought was that that was a part, a weakness in American choral music, specifically that philosophy had sort of taken a back seat or ensemble philosophy or choral philosophy had taken a back seat to a lot of more practical issues or social issues. And so what we thought is, well, these some of these things aren't being discussed. One example would be 
the virtual choir has been a topic, you know, and, and sort of has died out because we're all sick to death of it. <laughs> but, you know, we had actually did a podcast about the philosophy of the virtual choir long before COVID or oh, yeah. a short time before it. COVID. So yeah. what I'm saying is this is what we, this is what wasn't discussed was just whether it's good or bad doesn't even matter. It's about what it is and, and sort of ruminate on the value, not only the value, but um, perhaps some of the challenges about these things. So if you were to go and do a cursory view of the podcast, I think you'd find something of interest for nearly anyone. And then just because I am who I am and Richard is who he is, that sort of gives us the design and motivation for what it the podcast really is, which is there's, there's a trying to be a lot of joking there. I mean, we do take things seriously, but nobody wants to sit through an hour of just that. So there's a lot of nonsense. There's a recurring angry cow, you know, <laughs> there's, there's silly music. And actually there was a time where we were going to be the only podcast about choir to never have choir music on it. You know, that was sort yeah. of our one of our sticks there for a while. But to answer your further question about what does it mean to be contrarian, I think a lot of the one of the things that we've noticed, and I'll be contrary uh, here's a contrarian take for you right now, is that in our field, you're not rewarded necessarily for not following the general takes around the country. Mm -hmm. There's sort of in a, these agreements that are happened without agreeing, but these sort of overarching ideas and themes that, and maybe that's the case with every career, you know, there's just a general agreement about this is good, or this is not good, or this is the path that we should be going on. And I guess what Richard and I found is that we some of our ideas were sort of counterintuitive to not counterintuitive, maybe countercultural, maybe is what they would be, mm -hmm. where we're, we're, we're not directly shunning the sort of group think that's happening in American choral music specifically. But in a way, what we were discovering is that there needs to be more discussion, there needs to be more thinking happening. And what we found, or I found specifically, so is that almost every aspect of life we've turned upside down and that what we should be doing is approaching not only leadership, um, the way that we do choir, it's almost in an, we should be flipping it upside down and doing it not necessarily fully the opposite way, but in a way that rearranges the hierarchy of our ideas. So to be contrarian, just simply, I mean, and we can let that cat totally out of the bag. I mean, we're just trying to come up with a name. I mean, there is that <laughs> aspect. So there is sort of just a functional, we need a name. So let's sure. come up with something. But I don't know, it's sort of, it hit the nail on the head for us where a lot of our conversations were resulting about, you know, about like, not following the lemmings. And yeah. I, don't, I don't mean to throw anybody, every, <laughs> like everybody is a lemming. But let just sort of like, you know, why it and that's maybe part of the the thing about philosophy and and thinking philosophical i'm not gonna say philosophy but thinking philosophically about something is asking questions it's not just saying yes this is how you know we've come so far in choral music and as a leadership as a conductor okay i'm done asking questions about it you know that's sort of like well i'm gonna leave the questions to those people I see at ACDA that always get asked to perform because they're the ones that know. So I'm just going to assume that everything that we're, we're experiencing, I don't get a chance to ask questions. And I, I think that's what we do encourage that no matter if, if you're listening even to this and you're at a high school in the middle of Montana, you have every right to think through some of these issues for yourself because you're boots on the ground dealing with this kind of stuff on a day-to-day -day basis. So in just encouraging to think through as a contrarian. And if we, I think what we do is, uh, lastly, I'll say that we probably have slightly more contrarian takes than we're willing to go to on the podcast as well, because I'm not going to say because of the climate, just because we, we want to not 
it's not about being controversial. It's about being open enough to have people keep listening mm -hmm. where, it, you know, we're not putting the hammer down on anything. Like I, I don't even, let's just bring up virtual choir again. I don't, I think we have fairly strong takes about the virtual choir, but on the other hand, we're not willing to just put the hammer down and say, nobody can ever do a virtual choir and ever again without being a sellout or something like that. Yeah. And you know, there's, you had the episode just, where you had to yeah. revisit the right. idea after, right. <laughs> after quarantine right. started. Right. And say, are we going to do this or right. not? And, <laughs> and still some, some people in the country are probably still dealing with that question. I mean, I just got another email yesterday from a company that sort of birthed out of the COVID situation to say, Hey, we're a company creating virtual choirs for people and they're getting paid to do it. So, Hey, there's a whole new industry out there. That's right. That. That's right. Well, I caught your podcast, I think the second or third episode after you had started and I've been listening since. So I'm going to put a plug out to our listeners. You need to check out the Coral Contrarians. Fantastic podcast. Uh, it'll make you think that's for sure. So uh, I heard rumors that you didn't initially set out to be a composer but initially had interest in archaeology with some interest in graphic design. So I'm interested, what aspect of archaeology held your interest? Well, this is when I was a kid. And uh, so when I applied for schools, when I was a senior in high school, music was not there. I, I think I had wanted to continue as I did when I was a freshman in college, sing in the choir, which I is sort of my one liner to almost every high school I visit, which is keep singing in choir because you never, first off, you never know what'll happen, but you get to go to Europe or you get to do, you know, <laughs> well, not anymore. Thanks COVID. And so that was me at the time, because I think there was a sense in me that was a little tiny bit burnt out from music. And maybe there's some people out there that understand that when you go to a, say a smaller high school, you can, I'm not going to say get abused but you just are in everything. You're in everything, doing everything all the time. And I guess in the olden days, maybe that was a little even more possible than it is today to do everything at a smaller high school. And so that was me. And I was doing piano lessons, playing the oboe, doing the musicals, singing in choir, but not only that, but doing some sports. Besides, I still don't understand how it was possible when I think back on it. But that was a common routine, I think, for a lot of people that wanted to be involved. But there was something in me that wanted to do something else. The history and archaeology and, you know, I had, I had read a lot while I was growing up. And so that sort of that tickled my fancy a little bit. And really, it was about discovery, about history, about mystery. I was really into unknown history stuff, just a little bit of a side hobby about always being curious about ancient history and interested in that. And I did end up applying when I was a senior to the University of Pennsylvania, which at the time was the one of the better archaeology schools in the country. And then I also applied to a liberal arts college in Minnesota called Bemidji State University, which at the time had one of the better programs, if not one of the few programs in graphic design that specialized in model building. So when I say graphic design, I mean, that these were the days when I, when I was going, you know, going to go to undergrad, these were the days of the bubble max and I had a graphite color one, you know, uh -huh. things were cutting edge then, but this particular graphic design degree had an emphasis in model building, which if you don't know what that means, that means essentially building built, like if you've seen Zoolander, it's the, <laughs> he creates a model of the library for kids who don't read good or something like that. I can't remember what it was, but it would essentially be in contracting with architects to build the model. For mm -hmm. it. That's what, and, and, and I thought that sounded intriguing. I, I just thought, you know, so many freshmen going into college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I really had no clue. That would just sounded good at the time. I so think where did the shift happen to music? Right. That happened pretty quickly, pretty early on. And that happened during my freshman year because I did exactly what I said I was going to do. 
I joined the choir. <laughs> and lots of changes happened. I, I was sort of a 10 or two-ish person um, when I left high school. And when I entered undergrad, I was a bass, bass, bass two. So that was changing along with a ton of other things in my mind. My ideas about music was, were changing. I joined the choir and that year at Bemidji State University happened to be Paul Branvick's last conducting year. Now, Paul Branvick is sort of a, a big name in particular Midwest, Minnesota, but it happened to be his last year. And for his last year, he was going to do a European tour. So I was a freshman and we got to go to Europe. And I don't, there are some people that will listen to this podcast and not quite understand what a European tour was like in 1998. It's a lot different. I mean, this is one, it's pre 9-11. So flying is a little different. And everything is significantly cheaper. So for the price to go for about four days now was the price to go for like three weeks. Wow. And so at the time I sung in my freshman year, I went six months or a year period, essentially. I went from singing in a very small northern Minnesota high school choir of about 35, 40 to singing with a choir in Chart Cathedral. And that's actually where the real transition happened for me was in that cathedral. It was at the, the last concert that he was to conduct, Paul Brandvik. And I remember during that concert, I remember seeing tears on his face. And everybody was crying, of course, at the end of a European tour. Nobody wants those things to end. But for it was special for him because he was concluding a career of like 30 years, 35, 40 years, you know, this mm -hmm. insanely long career. And I got a sense, yes, it was the tears were about the music. I mean, that was a glorious space to sing. I, even at that young age, I could tell that there's more going on there at the time. And probably in that moment, he realized he was saying goodbye to the thousands upon thousands of people that he sung with, that he conducted, that he had an impact on their life. And he was well beloved. I mean, he was very beloved. And so the tears on his face were probably more about the people than they were the music. And I remember saying something to the effect of, well, this is way, this is not what I expected. This is not what I expect from music. I'd, I've never had this experience. Certainly I'd listened to and heard good singing, but this was something like, well, there's more here than a lot of other careers. There's something way deeper here. And after that trip, I, I changed my major that summer. Is that when you began um, composing? No. Um, I changed my major to uh, music ed and then quickly shifted that as well because I, I just didn't, at the time, I just didn't, again, I still didn't know what I was doing. I, I just knew I need, needed to do one of these. So I changed to a BA in vocal performance. And around my sophomore, junior year is when I started to compose due to a relationship gone poor and me having to emote. It's the classic story. Right. <laughs> Relationship gone bad. So I'm going to write something about it. And But for me, it wasn't pick up a guitar and go to the coffee shop and be emo. That wasn't me. Um, it was me sitting at a at a piano and just desiring to enter into the world that I had sort of fallen in love with, which is choir music. I, I just want, that was my emo. I didn't want to say something about my problem. I just wanted to escape into choir music and to also emote and create within it. And so many of the first years, many of the first year pieces were catharsis more than they were anything else. It was just a cathartic experience. Sure. Early on. You know, one of the things I love about choral music is the ability to tell stories, um, oftentimes stories that may go untold or unheard. Uh, you gave a presentation in 2014 at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh entitled Telling Stories. So I wonder if you could talk about how you tell stories through your music. Yes, I think 
that there's a piece of how I write and how I've sort of uh, developed my voice to be narrative in style. What I mean by that in some ways is that a lot of my music follows what people might recognize as the narrative arc. Um, and the narrative arc, just look it up. It's, <laughs> it's the exposition, climax, <laughs> resolution bit, um, if you really want to know about it. But if you follow a lot of my pieces, especially ones that aren't too experimental or, you know, there are certainly ones that aren't narrative arc, but many, many, many follow the narrative arc resulting in a climax, which and a denouement. So it follows a traditional path, which results in you feeling like you have listened to some sort of story that has more meaning than the face value. And for me, I, I just decide it's not even deciding. It just hap happened to be that when I would set poetry, almost any poetry, my instinct was to treat that poetry as if it had a story and a meaning below just the set poetry that all that to say that I would still also treat that poetry with hopefully respect in and of itself. I guess I was trying to find a way to show the experience uh, or the experience of reading poetry beyond just putting poetry to music. Mm -hmm. There, I mean, name any piece, probably my most famous piece is uh, Afternoon on a Hill. Okay, that just continues to be a piece people look to. Very narrative and style. It's a short poem about somebody on a hill. The, and it's the famous line, I will touch a 100 flowers and not pick one. Sort of the carpe diem motif. Okay. But the way that I set that poem is trying to give not only the singer, but the audience, the experience that on one layer that they are experiencing the hill, that the experience of Edna St. Vincent Millay on the hill, not just here's a poem about beauty or carpe diem or about, Oh, nature is so wonderful. Something happens on the hill. What? How can we experience that musically? And you can, you can write pieces in a way that make you experience some sort of emotive depth along with the poem. And the second, the second layer is I always want there, whether I'm successful or not, to have people think or feel like there's more to this situation than meets the eye in a piece that's really, really hard to talk about or get to. There's a lot of pieces out there that are very beautiful, spectacular even, but do they have something below that you want to find out what it is, or you don't, you don't know how to talk about what's there because there isn't anything there, but there are certain pieces that even if they're simple or complex or it doesn't matter, there's something else happening in there and you don't quite know how to talk about it. And you can control some of these things through, as a composer, through pacing, drama, um, the way that you deal with textures or motives and all that stuff and structure, certainly structure. But that's the goal. The goal isn't just to write a pretty piece or to just set poetry to music. I mean, I, I guess it's like, um, I've used this analogy before. Imagine like somebody came up to you and said, here, I'm going to pay you a bunch of money to paint pants on the David. You have this beautiful statue and what <laughs> it doesn't need pants on, <laughs> painted on, okay? Or a shirt. What does it need? I'm not, I'm not sure, but there's a way that music could wrap around poetry that would sort of create a story, some sort of narrative within the poem. Mm -hmm. Another, the last way, the last one I always use, the last or sort of metaphor I use for this would be something that I do enjoy, especially my kids, pop-up books. You know, they take the two-dimensional and make them three-dimensional. And for me, 
music and the way that I do it, at least the way I think about it sometimes is making this poem three dimensional with music. What does that mean? That means you can, with music, you can give surrounding, you can give space, you can give atmosphere to the poem, but then you can also ruminate on a word or repeat a phrase or stop somewhere or rush something on all in the midst of an atmosphere, all in the midst of some sort of feeling like you might get a, a perfect example of this, by the way, would be like Fern Hill by Corleano, a perfect, who is setting this perfect atmosphere for this poem. He sets the poem in such a way that it sort of fits the story within, within the, the atmosphere that he creates. I think that that, that poem leads you to feeling like you've listened to a story to some way or some sort of narrative. And you feel as most stories do that have good denouement, good conclusions after a climax that you feel full. You feel like you've completed something. Yeah. It's less looking like a picture and more like you walk to somebody's house. You know, it's more like you've walked somewhere than just staring at a picture, you know? Yeah. Well, I look forward to diving into some of your music in just a minute. Um, I do have one final question for you before I take a break. So I know that you wear a lot of hats, composer, conductor, educator, mentor, but most of that deals with music. So what do you do when you're not musicking? I like to spread the love with my hobbies a lot and like to explore um, I would say that a main hobby would be some sort of outdoor activity. I do, as my wife and I do a lot of hiking when we can. Um, but on the home front, I like to get in the garage and work with wood a lot. Um, not only the smells and the um, just the feel of everything, the look. I just think wood is super rewarding to work with. I like to roast my own coffee. I like to do things like make sauerkraut. But I think the one that I'm getting into now, which is a little late to the party, I totally get it. But I am making, I'm starting to really try to hammer out some sourdough right now. That's okay. sort of my hobby lately is to try to, I'm not perfecting anything. I And maybe that's my hobby. My hobbies aren't ones that lead to perfection. They lead to joy and then they'll go away you know and then <laughs> maybe something else will come up so really it's about doing out of the way things so those sure. are my hobbies my hobbies are just doing weird stuff cool. it's not, i just got <laughs> off the wall stuff all right well after we take a quick break we'll have a chance to listen to some of eric's compositions All right. Well, welcome back. I'm talking today with Eric William Barnum. So let's begin today with She Walks in Beauty. So I mentioned at the beginning of our interview today, you won the Chanticleer Student Composition Competition with this piece. So I've read that you like using text from English poets in your work, and this is no exception. With the text from Lord Byron, could you tell us what attracted you to this poem and what process you went through as you were writing? This this piece has as much of a story, a very, I'll make it quick, but a as much of a story as any other. I was uh, in Mankato, Minnesota, getting my master's degree. And I remember going to an Italian restaurant. Um, I was currently not dating anybody at the time, but um, there was this beautiful waitress. And I don't, I don't know what caused me to think, think this. But I thought a good idea wasn't necessarily to ask her for her number, but to write her a piece of music and then give it to her as some sort of gift. Uh, and it didn't, even now, it, it wasn't, there wasn't no trying to be creepy about it. It was, I didn't have a creepy intent <laughs> behind it. <laughs> um, but she was very, uh, she had like very black hair and 
And I remember just going back to the office. I was getting my master's degree, so there was a graduate office. And essentially, I wrote this piece in one evening. I, I think I remember reading this poem shortly before this. So there's some like synergy with the moment. Mm -hmm. And maybe I was just looking for a reason to write this at the time. You know, I just needed some, again, remember what I said, a lot of my writing was about catharsis at the time. It was about trying to emote what I was living. I certainly wasn't asked to write this piece. So I, at the time I, I was so super young in my career, I needed reasons. And this was the reason. And so when you listen to this piece, there's a very defined structure, A, B, A, B, A, B prime, you know, kind of with a coda. And that's the point. I mean, it, it makes me think of um, when you first look at somebody and then you learn more about them or you're, you're visually looking at them as they pass and you learn more just a little more each time, even though what you're seeing is the same person. So there's a cyclical nature to it as they walk forward. Um, anyway, the result of this piece that I wrote very quickly was I, I gave it, I brought it back to this restaurant and I talked to the manager and, and just said, Hey, I'm not trying to be creepier. I just thought this would be really cool to do this. And here it is. And I didn't hear anything back for a long time. And I remember talking to this manager later who said, all of us at the restaurant thought this was so cool. This was an amazing thing. She didn't care at all, <laughs> but we all thought it was great. <laughs> and so I think that very week that I had that conversation, the Chanticleer competition was going on or what the due date was like that week. So I just like, I don't care. I'm just going to send this piece in because I don't know what, I don't care what happens to this thing. Um, just like, like the kid that I was and I sent it in and uh, happily enough, they chose it. And I, I remember that they did a concert uh, out there and announced it as the winner of this contest. And I remember reading a review about it that sort of panned it and said, this is really the best piece that they could have selected. And I remember feeling bad about that. But as I look, look back on the situation, I, I think about this piece, it, it is what it is. It's supposed to be this way. It is supposed to be this sort of very simple, clean, I would call it clean, very simple. Um, and it's very innocent. I mm -hmm. think that's a, a feeling like I would like people to have as an innocence. It's not meant to be mind blowing, but neither is chance meeting. Neither are chance meetings with people. Yeah. Sometimes you're, I mean, in this case, you're just sitting there and then you see somebody it doesn't have to be some sort of mind blowing experience. It can be very gentle and, and innocent. All right. Well, we're going to take a moment here and listen to She Walks in Beauty performed by the Drake Choir under the direction of Dr. Amy Beckman Collier.
Let's turn next to Adoramus Te Criste. So this piece seems to be derived from your interest in chant. Uh, I know you did your, your dissertation on chant music, uh, did an analysis of a hundred different chants. So is this an existing chant melody that you used for this piece, or is this something you composed originally based on those ideas? Or how did this you This is this? something that I did based, just based on okay. those ideas. And there's a the story with this piece is uh, in 2005, I was asked to be the composer in residence for a Cantorai in Denver, Colorado. No, yeah, 2005, I think. Sorry, Cantorai <laughs> people, if you're listening. I can't remember the year. Um, but for that, I wanted to do something bigger. Uh, and so I created this seven piece set called the Rose of Midnight, which was surrounding a Vachel Lindsay poem called the Rose of Midnight. And then surrounding it was these three sort of chant texts. I'm sorry, it started with three chant texts, which were about sort of the crucifixion. And then in the very middle as a hinge was the Rose of Midnight. And then it was two, two poems sort of uh, mirroring the first several. Um, and then the last, the last was a, the last piece was, um, a, just another sort of pseudo chant type influence. But this one was number five in a set of seven. And in a way, it was sort of, I'm not going to say a cast off piece, but I, I don't know if you know what this feels like, but it's sometimes the piece you pay the least amount of attention to ends up maybe being the strongest piece. I don't, I, I don't know. This was a piece that I was really a response to what had come before in this set, which was a lot more complex, a lot more uh, visceral, a lot harder, a lot harder. And this was just sort of meant to be or an interlude of sorts in this group of seven. And, and if you ha hold it in that context, it does have a different meaning to it. It holds a different meaning. And it was always meant to be like two minutes or less. It was just meant to be a breath. Mm -hmm. What's funny about that actually is now that, I mean, it was excerpted and published by Walton years, years ago now. And maybe that's good. It was always meant to be a breath on its own. It's not it is very chant and there's no doubt that if you're listening to this and are familiar with Duraflay, you will hear Duraflay in this somewhere. Lots of Duraflay actually in this particular piece. Um, it sounds very similar to like the, the middle section of Ubi Caritas by Duraflay. There's a lot of that in here. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of where I took my, my lead from in writing homophonic chant, which is really what this is. It's homophonic chant. And, and so that's the story. It, it is, I was surprised and still remain surprised because I know sort of its greater context is meant to be placed within sort of this umbrella of other things. But, um, but if you hold it in the context of a standalone breath, just a, a response of sorts to, to something else, or it's again, for this piece, it's not meant to be some sort of crazy thing. Although there's still, even in this piece, there is a narrative arc, even in this piece, which is chant driven, homophonic chant, there is a narrative arc to the piece and you will hear it. Mm -hmm. climax and resolution with a I love the resolution <laughs> so anyway and and also there's something in here which I like to do which is the chant which is the the repetition of the opening phrase just to re-solidify that it's very simple um, also very structural and I guess the more that you 
get to know my music, there is structure in weird ways everywhere. Not weird ways, but common, some common ways, some weird, but structure is everywhere. Repetitions matter. Okay, well, let's go ahead and listen to Adoramos de Criste, performed by the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire Concert Choir under the direction of Gary R. Schwartzoff. Next, let's talk about the sounding sea. I think one of my favorite moments of this piece comes near the end, right after the line, the hoarse murmur of the sea, the choir begins this ebb and flow with the sound of the sea. And I noticed several times that the choir seemed to be echoing elements of the sea. So what, were, what was your thought process as you, was working, as you were working on this piece? This piece is a great example of a turning point, I think in my career, mm. exactly what you're talking about, um, where I tried to mimic natural imagery with sound somehow. And 2008 uh, was 2008, 2009 when I was writing this. I was writing two pieces at the same time, The Sounding Sea and um, Across the Fields. And what's really funny about these two pieces is that I was writing the The Sounding Sea for Iowa State University and across the fields for the University of Washington. So literally the opposite of what should have been happening. (laughs) I was writing a piece about the ocean for Iowa and a piece about fields of fields of wheat for University of Washington. (laughs) Um, In the case of the Sounding Sea, this is a direct, uh, essentially story of me sitting, if you're from the, from Washington. This is a story, in a way, an imagery of sitting at Carkeek Park on the essentially North Seattle. Another place that's very similar would be Golden Gardens. If you're sitting on one of these um, drift, huge driftwood logs staring out at the ocean or at Puget Sound, sorry, and you see the Olympic Mountains across the sound, the, the moment that you're talking about is that image, is the image of sitting on one of the, at one of those two parks and looking across and seeing a sunset across Puget Sound where you have the Olympics right there. What's funny, and the story behind this piece, super brief, is the sort of coming in from the deep ocean to land. So as we go through this piece, you're going to, 
hear several mo motives of huge waves and then your ship imagine your ship being crashed about all over the place and then you start the waves recede and you can enter speed the wind catches your sails and you start speeding along and even in the midst of that i don't know if you've ever ridden on a boat and when a wave hits your boat there's a big bang to it there's a sort of a jolt to it and that's the, what the stomping is all about mm -hmm. it's mimicking that and as you come into harbor it's the exact moment that you're talking about the harsh murmur of the sea is when you step onto land and you instead of being in the sea you turn around and look at the sea and you sit down and i remember the probably the most poignant moment of this whole piece is the slide in the altos not long much longer after that i remember the con the conductor of this piece was wondering about it at the the first performance the premiere was at an ACDA convention in 2009. And he talked about how do we get this to sound? What is this about? Because it just sounds like we're, we're kind of drunk or something. It just sounds like this sort of slide. And I just want you to imagine it when, while you're listening to this piece, when it gets to that section that you're sitting on this log looking out at the Puget Sound with all the colors. The sea takes on a different shape. But here's the key. Here's the key. You're not alone. It's not just you. There's somebody else. And what's your instinct during that time? Your instinct is to wrap your arm around that person and to draw them in to yourself as you look out across the ocean or at, as you look over the color. You're your instinct is to love in that time and to look out together. And so the slide is up and in from the altos and that's to draw somebody into yourself hmm. as you start to look out. And so that's the poignant moment from this piece. The piece is, this is maybe the most quote narrative piece I've ever, almost one of the most narrative pieces I've ever written. It does have a storytelling atmosphere to it. Um, and, and then it ends with just color, you know, just colors. And, um, there's a little moment of the glistening off the waves of the light at the sunset. All right. Well, let's listen to the sounding sea performed by the university singers at the university of Missouri, Columbia, under the direction of Dr. R. Paul Crabb.
All right. Well, lastly today, let's go to your piece, The Star Stand Up in the Air. Honestly, I'm not sure I have much to ask about this piece. <laughs> it was one of the first ones of yours that I became familiar with. And I love this piece. And I would just like, I'd just like to hear what it means to you as you were working on it. Well, I mean, this piece to me is about sort of duality of love and sort of the way that a human can be fractured in their approach to love. Like, uh, so this person has a love interest that has spurned him, right? And our natural tendency, it seems like human beings is to, you know, to be defensive in that situation a little bit, like, fine, then, you know, fine. All right, fine. I'll make my own way now. Thanks, you jerk. You know, to, to be like, I'm better than this. How dare you spurn me? But imagine, imagine the situation where you could love somebody more than that. like you love somebody more than that, where you're stuck loving past that, where you say, yes, I am scorned. I am done. This person is done with me. And yet I still think the same things I felt before. I still think this person is um, more beautiful than the stars that stand up in the air. You know, and you're so broken that one of my favorite lines in here is, I wish that all music were mute. And I've been there. I know what that, I mean, I know what that feels like to just want silence. You just want to be alone. You do, you're just so devastated. But I just love it that he, instead of just saying, well, good riddance, it's more, but... She's more beautiful than the stars stand up. I mean, than the stars stand up in the air. That she's more fair. There's a there's still this depth, which it makes it even more dramatic and I think more poignant. And probably the big moment that that describes this entire piece is the last phrase, tis my grief that her ever I knew. And I it just sort of encapsulates everything about this. You, you would rather have never known this person <laughs> than, and because then you wouldn't be dealing with this because you can't deal with the reality mm -hmm. that you can't stop loving this person, even though you're scorned by this person you, and you, you can't like go, well, see you later. It, it's my, tis my grief that her ever I knew. And the way that I decided to do it at the end was yet and again, I choose like these tiny moments that sort of explain the whole thing. So if you're listening to this, there's that moment at the end, you'll hear the um, Sopranos and Altos saying, tis my grief that her ever, and then on the word I, it splits into two. On the word I, it splits. And then it joins back into the word new as a single note, as a single melody. And it just pinpoints everything about the word I splits. And it sort of encapsulates the concept that I'm split. I'm just split about this. Mm. I've got, I want to go and I, but yet I love, I I'm, I'm broken and in sort of the state of splitness about this situation. It's a fabulous poem. It's a fabulous poem and very deep, very emotional. And again, there's a bit of a, a folk music flair to it, but with, again, a very narrative arc to the entire piece, which hopefully makes you feel like you've experienced some story, mm -hmm. not just the poem, but a story about the poem within the poem, underneath the poem. All right, well, we are going to experience this story together 
as we listen to The Star Stand Up in the Air, performed by the University of Washington Chamber Singers under the direction of Dr. Jeffrey Bors.
All right. So Eric, where can my listeners learn more about you? Could you plug your website? Yeah, sure. The The best possible place would be www.ericwilliambarnum.com. Um, and then they have access to uh, just more information, but not only that, but they have hopefully the lists of every type of piece that will lead them to where they could listen to it or where they could uh, look at it or buy it if they want to try it with their choir. Um, it also has links to, again, the podcast that we mentioned along with other social media at, at, as well as Drake University. Fantastic. Right, are you out on social media as well? Well, I try to be, but I also try not to be, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I try to be, but I'm pleased if I happen to miss a day. Sure. Or two. Well, Eric Barnum, I thank you for joining me today. It has been a pleasure to talk to you on Movable Dough. Thank you, Steve. My guest today was composer Dr. Eric William Barnum. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. To hear previous episodes, visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. If you'd like to continue this conversation or share your favorite music by Eric Barnum, join us on our Facebook group, Movable Dough Listeners, and follow us on Instagram at Movable Dough Podcast. If you have a recommendation for a future guest, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.